Last week, if you were here, wait, raise your hand if you weren't here last week. Okay, good. Don't tell the people who raised their hand that we tried to talk about too much stuff in too short a period of time. Um, but for if you were here last time, I do. I, I think we had too much to do. So uh, we didn't really get to talk about uh, God's love and the relationship between God and law and um, love and the Jewish people. And we're going to have to do that a different day. So if you're sitting there going, wait a minute, I saw that on the list, but we didn't really talk about it, you are correct. Uh, and we'll we'll come back around to that. Um, you know, just going to leave a cliffhanger so that you have to invite me back. <laughs> uh, and I do want to say this. Um, I appreciate that you, your applause for me being here. I'm completely uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 I love doing this. Right? I'm grateful to you. Like, it's nice that you think that it's great. I owe you the thanks uh, for letting me come here and to let me, um, four weeks in a row, stand up and, and teach you and, and learn with you and talk with you about things that um, might, might change the world a little bit. Right? Like, we're doing this because it's nice to learn, sure. And we're doing it in this format. I'm the local resident expert professional Jew coming in to talk with you because that might change how we see each other. That might change how we relate to each other. I don't think we have particularly contentious Jewish Presbyterian relationships or anything like that. But you just, you just don't know, right? You just don't know. So I'm grateful to you all for the opportunity to try to move the needle a little bit. And even if our conversations don't do anything to change how we see each other. Perhaps the idea that there's room for us to learn from one another and understand each other differently can translate into other people that we might know, other people that you might have a contentious relationship and stop and think, you know, if their local resident professional, whatever, came and stood before us, maybe there'd be room for another conversation as well. So that's my secret, not so secret, um, hope uh, pretty much all the time, right? That we can somehow be better as a community by coming together, by learning from from each other. So um, I'm I'm extremely grateful to Alan and uh, who's not standing here, but to the to your church for letting me come in. I'm grateful to you for um, warmly welcoming so many of my congregants. I have like one little table over here, and it's like glowing. Might be two tables by next week, um, and also friends and. Um, from other churches who also come in through your doors. So thank you for all of that, and I think the applause are really uh, for you and not for me. So uh, today, today, we are going to talk about, share the right pages, good. Um, we're gonna talk about the different religious groups that existed during, during sort of the evolution from Jesus's lifetime into Paul. And we're gonna end up talking a bunch about Paul, and I'm going to touch on uh, some of the texts in and around Romans, I think it's like 9, 10, and 11, 9, 11, and 12, something around there, where there's some discussion about um, how Paul talks about um, the non-Jews, right? So if that makes sense to you, great. It barely makes sense to me because my knowledge of Romans is very, very, very thin. I just know that there's a little bit of a question in and around there. Um, and if it doesn't make sense to you, that's super great too. Um, you're not alone in this room. And um, hopefully we'll learn something new anyway. 
So the first thing to know is that, you know, we have these sort of titles, right? We have the title of Jew, um, Jewish Christian, uh, um, Gentile or pagan Christian. We have this term Judaizers, Judaizers, I guess would be the proper way to say that. And they're not terms that were in play at the time that we're talking about. Jewish was, right? Like Jesus gets up in the morning and he looks in the mirror and he would say, I'm Jewish, right? Paul did not get up in the morning and look at himself in the mirror and say, I'm a Jewish Christian. Because Christian wasn't a thing yet. Right? Christian isn't a thing until after Paul. He sort of becomes the seed planner to make all this happen. Jesus didn't think he was starting a new religion. Paul didn't think he was starting a new religion. Paul thought that this was the end of days, that Jesus' resurrection was the sign of the end of time, and that his rule in the coming of the end of days was to help bring non-Jewish, Gentile, pagan, whatever not Jewish looked like, folks into the fold of Judaism without converting them. Yes? No? Crazy? Okay, great. I'm hoping that you're like, really? Good. Okay, I want a little scandal. Just a little, not a lot. So, um, but we're going we're gonna to sort of break all of those things down. So just know that the titles that we have now are um, sort of anachronistic retrojections from now into the past where we're trying to understand what was going on, but people didn't have these titles. And so the ways in which titles sort of put us in boxes and make us very linear and categorized um, is artificial, right? It just wasn't there. This is all very, very, very fluid things that are happening uh, in real time that we're now trying to look back and dissect and tease apart, and we're doing the best with the tools that we have. And sometimes those tools help us, and sometimes they make things um, seem like they weren't, okay? So we're gonna look at some of those things. Um, sometimes, um, yeah, okay. So, so let's start by talking about um, pagan or Gentile Christians as, a, as an idea, okay? Remembering that that wasn't a thing. So we're gonna describe a thing that wasn't real at the time that it happened. Okay. Um, so we, if you, we look in the book of Acts, and there's um, James and his colleagues refer to the followers in Antioch. Wait, pause for one second. I'm going to explain to you a bunch of stuff about Christianity that you might already know that largely I'm learning right now. And I know that there are several people in the room, mostly sitting right here, who are from my congregation and who have like no chance of following along unless I catch them up a little. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, I'm going to talk a little bit about things that you're like, yeah, yeah, Rabbi. We got that. I don't mean to be patronizing or rude. I just want to, you know, also if I get it wrong, <laughs> please, please let me know at the beginning. <laughs> don't hold those comments for the end. <laughs> okay, so in, in Acts, we see James and his colleagues refer to the followers from Antioch as, um, uh, we, and, and Antioch is a community that's full of people who are not Jewish. He refers to them as the brothers of Gentile origin. So you know that you have these people who are both brothers, as in part of the Jewish community in some way, and of Gentile origin, meaning they weren't born Jewish and aren't really taking on Judaism in a conversion kind of way. Okay? 
Um, and he also talks about the circumcised believers. So those would be people who are circumcised and arguably therefore Jewish and believers in Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus' resurrection, so forth and so on. All right, so that's how we get a sense of these two groups. And so for shorthand, we'll call that first group um, Jewish Christians, and we'll call, no, we'll call that first group um, pagan Christians or Gentile Christians, and we'll call the second group Jewish Christians, okay? Um, we also see it in Galatians. Paul refers to the gospel of the circumcised, and Peter is the apostle of the circumcised. And, uh, right, okay? Now you guys are all caught up. Okay. That's all the Christianity you need to know right now. Now, you have this term that gets thrown around, and it's the, the word is called Judaizers. Uh, and ultimately, in time, in history, this term gets to be used in actually a very um, harsh and derogatory way. It, it means it's people who act as if they're Jewish when they may not be. So, if we think about, how this is going to be clear, and I'm not jumping ahead of myself a little. If we think about Paul as talking to people who are not Jewish, yeah, I'm going to come back to this. I have to make another point first. So, Paul is talking with these people who who aren't who who aren't Jewish, right? They're born um, as non-Jews. Paul sees his role in the coming of the end of days as as bringing these non-Jews into the fold of the Jewish people. There's a text in Isaiah that says at some point in time, right, when the end of time is coming, that the nations, we'll come back to the word nations in just a second, will come to know God, the Jewish God, as the one true God, right? But they don't convert. And Paul, initially, so Paul, pause, Paul, <laughs> initially, doesn't believe in Jesus as Jesus, as a, as, a, as a Christ figure. And something happens in his travels, and maybe you know what it is, but I don't, that convinces him that Jesus is the, is the real deal. Um, and so therefore he changes his tune, right? So he has this real shift, which becomes really challenging because people think sometimes that Paul converted, but, and now I'm gonna tell everybody, there's nothing for Paul to convert to. Right? Paul can't convert to Christianity because there is no Christianity until after Paul. Right? So Paul isn't a convert. And I think that might be surprising news to some people. Right? I think Paul in history is portrayed as being the first convert to Christianity. And he kind of isn't. Right? He is converted to the idea that Jesus is Jesus as you think of him. <laughs> I'm not arguing Jesus' existence. <laughs> and so, that, so in that way, he's really interesting. But, um, but that's a big deal, right? That his mind changes, right? That also is part of the story. So he thinks it's really important to take these people who aren't Jewish and to have them act as if they are, to take on Jewish ritual and law and practice within some limits. So as not to be fully Jewish, because the text in Isaiah, which was known to Paul, says that the non-Jews, the nations, will come to know God, come to know the Jewish God. Now, here's just a moment of um, linguistic fun. 
The word in Hebrew for nations is goyim, is goy, and the plural is goyim. And you might have heard this term before. Yes? Has anyone heard this term before? Right? It's not a nice term. In, 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 in Yiddish today, when you refer to goyim, you mean non-Jews, and it's not the nicest, it's not like the worst, but it's not the nicest way to refer to non-Jews. Okay? So when you hear that around, don't let anyone get away with that. Just, just say it. There are other terms for non-Jews that are much worse. Don't let people get away with that either, by the way. I'm not going to say them out loud. In my like vernacular, it's like saying those words is like saying the N-word. You just don't do it, right? Like you just don't. They're out there, and if you need me to whisper them to you quietly later on, I will be happy to, for education's sake, articulate what these things are. But now you know where that word comes from, right? It has a very neutral tone. And in Hebrew, it's still, the word for nations is still goy or goyim, or goyim, right, if you say it in Hebrew. Um, and so you might, if you come with us to Israel in May, uh, you might hear it, and you know you shouldn't be offended. So now, there. We all know a little more Hebrew. And you're learning a lot of Hebrew here, by the way, right? We've learned Messiah is a Hebrew word. Um, next time, maybe we'll talk about the word hallelujah, which is a Hebrew word. And now you know goyim, which is, you know, rude. Okay. So, um, I interrupted myself about Paul. So... You know about Paul. I told everyone. Okay. So, um, oh, I do want to say something about what it means to be Jewish. Um, one of the great questions about, right, so here, here's Paul, and he's trying to um, do inreach, outreach to inreach, right? He's trying to draw people closer. There's a, he's proselytizing. If I can use that with like a lowercase p instead of like a capital P proselytizing, right? He's trying to convince these people, persuade these people that they need to come into the Jewish fold and that he doesn't want them to become Jewish. And let's talk for a second what this means, right? What does it mean to be Jewish? When we talk about like Jewish Christians or Jewish anything, that being Jewish is a nature of one's, um, could be, um, you could be Jewish by birth, but there's a question of if so, who's rules around birth and is it matrilineal descent or patrilineal descent and is it one generation or two generations or three generations right if you had a Jewish great 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 grandmother is that enough right how Jewish is Jewish enough before you can have the title right like if you take red and blue dye and you put it in the water how much do you have to add of each color before it's actually purple and no longer right you know what I mean right okay right Um, eugenics which is a dangerous word but but this is the question. Um, if it's by practice, then what practices make you officially Jewish? Circumcision seems to be a pretty hard stop of a barrier. If you are circumcised, you're Jewish. If you're not circumcised in this context, largely means you aren't Jewish. And that was a point of contention, right? Paul's telling people, don't get circumcised. He wasn't saying don't get circumcised because he didn't think it was important. He was saying don't get circumcised because he was saying don't be Jewish. You have to stay over here. You have to stay not Jewish. For the prophecies to work, for the end of time to come, for us to enter into the messianic age, Jews have to stay Jews and recognize Jesus as Jesus, and non-Jews have to stay non-Jews and recognize themselves as an integral part to the coming of, for the return of the Messiah. Okay. 
I'm waiting for like shock and awe here. Um, and the other is um, who recognizes you as Jewish? Yes. That all seems like semantics to me. Some of it might be, but say more. In, in what way? Which part? It all feels like semantics is the comment. If somebody doesn't believe in any particular re- religion, why do they have to be converted to Judaism? Why can't they just be taught the precepts? So do you have to convert? Right? How, what difference does it make if you convert or not? Can't you just be in the same? No. So depending on whose rabbi you ask, it doesn't. Right? If you want to, not you specifically, because if Alan heard me saying this, he'd be very upset with me. But for example, if one wanted to come down to our Oh, hi. He snuck in when I wasn't looking. If one, I'll be more generic. If one wanted to come down to our synagogue, and we have people who do this, right? We have a lot of people who come to our synagogue who aren't Jewish, who aren't born Jewish, who haven't converted, and who function as fairly regular members of the community and the congregation. And and I, as the rabbi there, and us as a community don't have a problem with that. So in some places, you have to know it's not an issue. In this particular context, there was a larger sort of metaphysical thing, battle, being waged. And so getting all the parts and pieces in the right place mattered to bring about this end of time thing, right? So I don't know if rabbis at the time did or didn't care. I mean, I just, I just don't have that information. But I do know that in the world today, we actually still ask these questions, right? My next note here is like, this is still a huge issue today. So I love that you asked that question. Um, because we still ask, right? If somebody says, are you Jewish? I'm working with a man right now. I'll just tell you a quick story. Because I have a minute, I can do that. I'm working with a man right now who's from um, somewhere in South America, and he wants to convert. And he was—he has this um, interesting history where he was. There's a whole world where Jews become these sort of closeted Jews, where they're publicly Christian and they're secretly Jews. And I know all these people who come and they'll be like, "Well, you know, we were Christian, but on Friday nights my grandmother would go to the basement and light candles, right?" Because somewhere in that history, they had been Jewish, had been forced or you know, had to convert for whatever reason, but maintain that ritual. So this gentleman has that kind of history. It's being a Murano Jew or a Converso Jew is the technical term for it. And he now wants to make Aliyah. He wants to move to Israel. And under the right of return in Israel, if you're Jewish, you can do that. Right? They open the doors and let you in. They actually um, give you money to help you make that transition. I don't know if you, if you know that. Except when he put in his application, they said, you're not Jewish enough. Right? So this guy came to me and I said, you're Jewish enough. I don't need you to go through a conversion. Um, He actually lives uh, outside of San Antonio, Texas. So there's a friend of mine who's a rabbi there. And they did a ritual at their synagogue and gave him a Hebrew name because he never had one. And he was so happy he got to call his 95-year-old mother before. She's still alive, thank God. But um, he was worried this wouldn't happen before she died. And said, guess what, mommy? I'm Jewish, and you're Jewish, and my daughter's Jewish, and now the state of Israel says, nope, right? Because for them, it's not Jewish enough by any one of these standards. Who recognizes you as Jewish, um, what kind of rituals you undertake, and um, your, you know, your blood lineage, which is an interesting thing. I recently learned that um, blood lineage and religion 
don't necessarily go together for every faith group. <laughs> I think it's just like us and the Catholics. We're like the only ones. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> maybe not. There's a titter. Okay. Um, so okay. So so let's come back to um, so let's come back to to Paul. Right. So let's talk about Paul for just a little bit. Kind of give a little background. Well, I gave you a little bit of the background on Paul. Um, Yeah, so, so Paul uh, essentially really saw himself as a reformer um, of a faith that already existed, not the parent or the midwife to a new religion. And I, I, I don't think I can put a fine enough point upon that, and I think history doesn't treat him that way. I think that's an interesting piece uh, for, for Paul, that when he writes he, he, some of the texts, and I'm sorry I didn't give myself a citation for this, um, he writes about changing the way in which he lives his Judaism. Right? Paul, um, the, a lot of the texts refer to Paul as being a fairly religious Jew. Right? He knows he knows his um, his kosher, he knows his Torah. He's pretty well well educated. Um, so, right? So Paul, um, as I said, right, he initially thinks that the non-Israelites can only have equal members, can only be equal members of the family of Abraham by converting. Right? And he later comes to recognize that that's not his role in this world. Um, and he was hoping that by sort of his proclamation, right, his proclamation to the non-Jewish world would inspire the Jewish world to get on board. That they would go, oh yeah, you're right. This is it. This is that moment. We all should be doing exactly what it is that you're doing. And so he really went out on a, uh, on a limb and in some ways probably felt like a heretic. And I'm sure there are texts where he is treated as such, right? That um, that here he is, this Jewish guy who's trying to convince the Jews, um, it was sort of like a secondary thought, right? That that he's right. That they too should have their moment where they go, oh my God, this guy is the guy. Right? Jesus is the thing and we need to, we also need to do our part to help bring about um, the, the, the end times. So I want to talk about the scene where Paul and Peter are in Antioch and they have lunch together to kind of tease us apart. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, because all I really know is there's a scene where Peter and Paul are in Antioch and they're having lunch, right? And they sit down at this table um, with non-Jews, right? Peter and Paul. And uh, a bunch of Jews come in and Peter leaves. Right? Peter walks away. And from what I understand, he feels uncomfortable. He seems to feel uncomfortable that he's going to be caught eating with non-Jews, which apparently was a no-no. Right? We've evolved since then, clearly, as you can see by breakfast today. We can all eat together just fine. Right? Do I have the story correct, Alan? Good enough? Do you want to, like, inmate missing anything? Okay, great. Okay. Um, Paul then says something to Peter, right? He gives him like a finger wag and gives him a talking to because he's behaving in a way that's inconsistent with their mission, right? Um, Peter is also Jewish, right? Peter and Paul are Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. They believe in Jesus and they're Jewish, which today we call you not Jewish if you do that. But at the time, that wasn't a thing yet, right? Just go back to that. And... um, and, and Paul is really upset with Peter because their whole point is to say, look, these people who aren't Jewish, 
who are going to sit at a table and behave as if they're Jews are essential to this mission of bringing about, bringing back the Messiah, right? Bringing about this messianic age. And if you're going to get up and walk away from the table when the other folks walk in the room, then you're being a hypocrite and cut it out, right? That's his upset. And that's Paul's upset with Peter, okay? And Paul makes a couple of self-deprecating remarks because I think he's frustrated with the Jewish establishment that they don't get what he sees to be patently obvious, right? So he makes some comments where he rejects the superiority um, that the, you know, the sort of Jewish privilege, which is sort of funny to me to think that Jewish means privilege because that's not exactly how history is played out, but you know. Uh, but there's a sense of Jewish privilege that you have this closeness and this proximity to God that people who aren't Jewish didn't have unless they, but they could have that through an attachment to Jesus. And he was angry and frustrated that these people who had the sense of privilege didn't recognize it, right? weren't able to see it, um, and therefore um, took it for granted and behaved in a way that he didn't really like. And so he's sort of self-deprecating because he's mad at, at the uh, system of which he's a part. Um, doing great for time. I'm actually going to have a ton of time for questions because this is really the last thing I want to say. So, so, um, so I just want to go back to the beginning, right? So we have these different groups. These groups didn't exist in the time that we're talking about. We retrofitted history to make sense of it for ourselves by giving people these names, um, Jewish Christian, pagan Christian, um, Judaizers. I want to say a little more about that actually before I wrap myself up here that um, during the Judaizers, initially that was Paul's whole mission, right? Is to get these people to act as if they were Jewish without converting. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was an important part of a master plan, God's master plan. I don't think I said that out loud yet, but you know, as Paul, as he saw God's master plan. And later in history, when people are um, Christian, and now I mean like Christians, and hanging on to their Jewish roots and still acting as if they are Jewish and keeping Jewish traditions and rituals and practices, they're used, they're given this term again, they're called Judaizers. But then it's mean. Then it's, it's sort of the Christian establishment way of saying, stop. Stop faking it that you're one of those people. Right? All of a sudden the terms change. All of a sudden there's not privilege for being Jewish, there's privilege for being Christian. And if you're doing that, then you're, you're false, right? You're a, you're a phony. And they didn't want you to do it, right? John Chrysostom, I can never say that name. I can read it, but I can't say it, um, says a bunch of things about Judaizers. And he's like a second century uh, uh, writer, a Christian writer. So the term changes from something that's very powerful and important in this grand scheme to something that in history becomes something very painful and works to sort of separate Jews and Christians from each other, sort of make this differentiation so you don't have Jewish Christians and pagan Christians and Christian Jews and all that mess. Let's just make it neat and clean. If you're one and you act like you're the other, then somehow you're doing it wrong. Right? I'm today totally fine. If you want to do whatever you want to do, go for it. Um, yeah, and then, and then, you know, and ultimately um, to think about Paul in this slightly different, I think is a slightly different way, that he was, he saw himself in sort of the grand arc of time as trying to move forward 
uh, the next step in this obvious, what was obvious to him, the sense of, of prophecy coming true, and that this was his role in it, right? bringing the non-Jews into the Jewish fold without letting them become fully Jewish, right? sort of bringing them in, but close but not too close that everybody has their role to play. Okay, so now we have like, honestly, actually a good amount of time to answer some questions. So I'd love if you have some questions from any week, from any anything. Yes? Wait, I would say the end times, what does that mean in the Jewish context? What do end times mean in the Jewish context? So um, we don't think a ton about it. Here's one of these neat places. We talked a little bit about this the first week, and I'm happy to, to be able to talk about it again now. Because the more that we're talking about these issues, the more we can see the ways in which Christianity and Judaism like diverge. And there's some politics at play over time, right? particularly this idea about the Judaizers. I'm coming back to your, com- your question, I promise. Um, you might not know it, but I promise I'll get there. Um, right, that, that initially, Judaism and Christianity, and I'm going to say Christianity, because again, it wasn't the same, uh, you know, were, were absolutely the same thing. They were just different parts of the same whole. And, and in time, as they start to separate into different things, there's this beautiful history. I mean, I find it really beautiful and fascinating. Where Judaism and Christianity are constantly trying so hard not to be the other one. Right? They're like, well, if you're going to do that. And it's like, forever I feel this way. I have a big brother. Right? I think I asked this the first day if you have a sibling. Right? So if you're an only child, I don't know if this will make sense. Although probably, we all, we all do what we do to establish our own individual identities. And some part of doing that sometimes says to whatever it is that says, oh, you should be this, I'm going to be not that just because you want me to. Right? Your mother always wanted you to be a doctor, and you're like, forget it. I'm going to go be a lawyer instead. Whatever. You were a room full of Jewish mothers. You would think that was funny. <laughs> so... So in the question about what does Judaism think about the coming of the Messianic age, I think because within Christianity, those thoughts become very, very clearly established and really well talked out and articulated, we haven't. So there's not a real clear sense within Judaism that this is exactly what we think is going to happen at the end of time. And it, like there's stuff in there. And it doesn't look radically different than what it looks like within a Christian context. Except the idea, you know, I think for Jews, it's, it's not that Jesus will return, right? Because Jesus isn't our guy. Uh, but that somebody will come and usher, usher in this end of time. And so, other than that, I think it looks pretty much, you know, pretty, pretty similar. That the world will be a better place, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Which is a, is a really interesting idea. Because the lion and the lamb might lie down together, but the lamb isn't going to sleep very well. <laughs> right? You've heard that? So I don't really know what those things ultimately... That's not my line, by the way. Don't credit me with that. I'm repeating someone else's, and I can't remember who said it. Um, so, you know, we have the sense that there will be this, this time where it's very peaceful, and it's very beautiful, and it's very lovely. Um, but I have to tell you that, that truly, um, that sounds terrible to me. Right? I mean, I could use a little more peace in the world. Don't get me wrong. But if you imagine that we live in a world without any kind of conflict or disagreement or whatnot, um, we would stop, right? There's something about the nature of being human that we wrestle, that we argue. Um, it, 
it ignites something in us that ultimately I think is transformative and beautiful. There's this um, great rabbinic text, this Jewish rabbinic text, that says the um, the rabbis caught the evil inclination, captured the evil inclination, right? They imagined the evil inclination as like a thing, as a person, sort of like a Satan kind of figure. Um, and they put him in a dungeon and they lock him up and they're so excited, right? They're so proud of themselves, those rabbis. Look, we caught the evil inclination. And then a few weeks or months go by and they realize that um, no, no new houses are built, uh, no new marriages are made, and no children are born. That there's something about needing a little bit of that utz, that's a Yiddish term, do you know what I mean? That little poke that keeps us going, right? And they let him out. I don't know why they think it's a man. I'm kind of glad they think it's a man, but that's my feminist thing. <laughs> right? So, so we think about what it means for the end of time to come. There is a sense it'll be deeply peaceful and deeply beautiful and lovely and all will be quiet in the world. Except I think realistically, I hope it's not totally like that. I think there's still some, I hope there's still some room for some foment, some, 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 a healthy amount of tension that keeps us moving, which makes me think on some days, and it's probably been a lot of days since I've felt this, but some days I feel like maybe we're already there and we might not actually know it, right? Which is a lovely thought to me, like heaven could look just like this, right? We're a room full of people who are just sitting together and enjoying one another and having great food and having conversation and being happy to learn and kind of think and, and evolve just one tiny step at a time. That's my text. That's not rabbinic text, but I hope you get the general idea. Other questions? Yeah, Barbara. You mentioned that to be Jewish, if I heard you correctly, there were three things. You weren't Jewish, circumcision, or the customs that you practice. So, so there's three ways that we're going to... There's The question is, how do you know if someone's Jewish, right? Go ahead, ask your full question and I'll what, what I wanted you to explain more is why it was so important in biblical times, the concept of, I don't know what book it was, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, I don't know, mm-hmm. when God spoke to Abraham and said to be, it was a covenant between right. Abraham and God to be circumcised. Mm-hmm. So that's why it was important, circumcision to be Jewish. Right, why circumcision? So so um, I'm suggesting that there are three uh, measures you might use to determine someone's Jewishness. One might be your lineage, one might be um, your ritual practices, and one might be who else says that you're Jewish, right? Um, and then I made the comment about um, circumcision under the category of ritual practices, that circumcision was a pretty clear marker, you're in or you're out. Although in the world today, it's not necessarily, right? There was a whole a history from like, I think like around the 20s or the 30s onward up until about 10 years ago, where it was de rigueur in hospitals when boy babies were born to circumcise, or right? to seen as being cleaner and healthier and so forth and so on. So actually that's not really a clear mark of delineation anymore, that you have lots and lots of people who aren't Jewish, who maybe even never met a Jew. But in biblical times, it becomes really important because it's what God says to Abraham in Genesis, right? And God says, take a flint and, you know, and extract, remove um, your foreskin, which I think is really powerful for two reasons. One is, oh my God, can you imagine somebody saying that to you? Right? I mean, just think about the leap of faith 
that it would take, and in the world today, if someone said to you that God came down and told you to take a flint and cut off your foreskin, you would think that they were interesting. <laughs> right? You might call for help. So, but, but it's an incredible act, right? It's an incredible, it's a permanent mark on your body. Penises are a very high risk kind of thing to be involved with with a flint. Right? So, so there's danger involved. Um, blood is a really important piece of making a covenant. Right? Blood brothers, pinkies in your, in your kids, you cut your hand, you blood. No? Okay, great. You're not nodding. I'm like, uh, was I the only one? <laughs> Actually, I never did that, but I'm just saying. Right? So all of these things become really important marks. And another reason why it was important was because it set, it set Abraham and his descendants apart from all the other people. Right? You can't pretend you're not circumcised. Right? You can't pass. Right? It's an interesting piece about um, when you're not in the privileged group. Right? There's two kinds. There's privilege in the world. Right? You, there's in every community, and it changes from one community to the next. There's like the thing that you need to be to be the pinnacle in that group, and if you're not that thing, you can either fake it and pass, or you can't. There's certain signifiers that will let you know. There's a whole thing in one of your books, and I'm sorry, I don't know which one it is, about Sybilis and Shibilis. Yeah? Okay, I saw that episode of West Wing, which is why I know about it. Okay. We have a joint question. You have a joint question. So anyway, so it's a thing that you can't, you can't change and you can't hide. Yeah, Jan and Dale, joint question. So, so what is the marker for women? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked it, and I don't... I'm not close enough to the end of the time that I can dodge it. <laughs> I don't, I mean, so if you don't know this about me, I will let you in, and I'm not very secret secret, that I'm a pretty ardent feminist, right? Okay, good luck, some of you giggled, because <laughs> you're like, yeah, no, we knew. <laughs> Um, I hate this about Judaism, and from an intellectual, let's be clear, please do not misquote me or misunderstand what I'm about to say, right? Like, be very careful here. From a certain point of view, I want there to be an equivalent gesture for women, which very quickly gets us into the world of female circumcision, which is female genital mutilation, and I'm not suggesting that, right? Okay, so did we just walk through that very narrow space very well? Okay, great. We don't have it. There's not an equivalent for women, and there's not a suggestion for it. I once did a baby naming for twins, twin boy and girl, right, where it's so in your face that there is not an equivalent for the girl because we did the circumcision for the boy, and then, right, and the parents looked at me and said, and then what will you do for my daughter? And I did research around it, right, and here's what we did. We did a foot washing. And it's part of the tradition, and it's a ritual, and it's beautiful, and it is completely categorically different than circumcision. And so you might make the argument, you might, God, I'm going to get myself into so much trouble here because this is being recorded, and I know it. You might, one might make the argument, therefore, against male circumcision to be part of the Jewish community. One might make the argument to find something equivalent for women, uh, you know, prick of a finger or something like that. When you convert to Judaism, if you're already, if you're a man and you're already circumcised and you want to convert to Judaism, 
they do a, there's a ritual called Hatafat Dambrit. It means a drop of blood for the sake of the covenant, where um, you'll take like a lancet, right? If anybody's a diabetic and you have those little tiny lancets, and right? So they'll use that instead of on your finger on the shaft of the penis to extract a little bit of blood. <laughs> the looks on your faces are so good. <laughs> You're like, really? Yeah, really. Um, right, so that's so so maybe there's room to say that for girls we're gonna take you know a drop of blood. I mean I don't know. There's nothing equivalent, and I you know do and don't want there to be, right? Because there's some danger in in the making of the equivalency. I think in the end it's it's just you get to you have your word and you make that commitment and that's it, but which is really women unsatisfying. Women yeah, it's a great point, right? In biblical, so Barbara said in biblical times the women weren't, weren't considered within the population, right? When you do a census, you only count men. You assume for every man there's probably about one woman, maybe more, maybe less. Yeah. Molly? But the burden in traditional Judaism for the back for lineage falls to the women. Yeah. Whereas in the Bible, it's only in modern times that there's a So there's a shift. Yes. So I'm going to repeat Molly's question, so in case you can't hear in the back. Molly was was commenting that the the burden of of descent, right? That issue of who's your who's your daddy or who's your mommy, <laughs> right? Um, it, it actually shifts. Um, historically, it's gone back and forth between uh, patrilineal descent to matrilineal descent, and now patrilineal descent is now back in in vogue in certain communities, right? So like within the reform movement, your mother or your father can pass along that Jewish heritage from like a genetic point of view, which isn't real. There's no genetic, there's no gene for Jewish. <laughs> Just in case I didn't say that. So it is an interesting piece of it, right? The power of the mother as being the, the, the giver of your Jewishness without having the ability to have a mark for your Jewishness. And um, you're, you're pointing out to some things that I think are really challenging within the Jewish world, and there aren't really good answers for them for them yet. And I think we have time for one last question. I'm going to take both your questions and see if I can answer them at the same time. Go ahead. As you describe this world is sorting Jewish or you can convert to Judaism and then you have the choice of what you do with it, right? Um, and sometimes, just as a, another aside, sometimes we hold different standards for people who are born Jewish versus people who are Jews by choice. Uh, and I think that's really unfair. 
So personally, as a rabbi, I try to do things to level that playing field, right? To make it that like, if you, um, I have somebody who's come before me and they want to convert, and they're an adult male, he's I think about 60 years old, and he's not circumcised, and he doesn't want to be circumcised because he's 60 years old and he's lived his life with his foreskin just fine, thank you very much, and he'd like to keep it, right? Like, and and there aren't a lot of rabbis who will convert him without circumcision. And I'm like, well, if somebody was born and they're not circumcised, they're born Jewish and raised in a Jewish household and they're not circumcised, I do not make people drop their pants when they walk in my door, right? That would be rude. why would I hold that same standard for somebody who wants to enter into the covenant of Judaism, right? So I'm one of very, very few rabbis who will who will officiate his conversion. And by the way, a lot of other rabbis won't accept his conversion um, because of that. So yes, there are two choices. There's two ways you can be Jewish. You can be born Jewish, you can convert in. Um, and then there's a lot of complexity within what exactly that means or what that looks like. So, okay, so we're now at exactly at the 10 minute, 10 till nine mark. Um, we're gonna stop here. Um, next week, we're going to look at texts, Jewish texts that are contemporary to the time of Jesus and or the time of Paul. I'm still deciding exactly what we're going to look at. Um, and I'm going to have you look at texts um, in a Jewish way, which means I'm going to have you study texts together for a couple of minutes. And I'm very excited. So, uh, and I wanted to let you know that that's what's going to be coming next week. So feel free to bring a friend um, that you really want to study with or bring a stranger that you really want to get to know better because it's a great way to know people is through studying text. Um, If you feel able-bodied and enthusiastic and willing, um, please stay a few moments to help move the chairs and the table to help um, Nat so we can welcome your brand new pastor who I'm looking forward to meeting. And thank you very much, everyone. Have a wonderful week.